Up next in the Property Week calendar of events is this year's highly anticipated Resi 360, taking place on the 12th and 13th of September at the Royal Lancaster London Hotel, where senior Resi sector leaders build valuable industry connections, immerse in interactive debate and come away inspired by a powerhouse lineup of over 50 expert speakers. Key topics in discussion on this year's agenda include market trends and macro influences, investment strategies, technology and innovation in property, sustainable homes, the future of BTR, placemaking and community engagement, and so much more. Through a mix of interactive debates, keynotes, panel discussions, presentations, fireside chats, and 20 different roundtable discussions. Your Resi 360 ticket will also include an elegant evening dinner on day one, followed by the Resi Trailblazer Awards, showcasing the outstanding achievements and emerging talents within our industry. Don't miss out, book your place today and be part of Resi 360, the future of UK housing. Hello and welcome to this week's PropCast with Andrew Teacher and I'm joined this week by Rachel Miller who's Investment Director for the Housing Growth Partnership and by John Tatham who's CFO at PFP Capital, part of Places for People. Rachel, good to see you. Let's start by explaining what Housing Growth Partnership means because it sounds a bit like just a general statement of intent by pretty much everybody I've had on this podcast over the last yeah. five and a half years. Thank you for having me, Andy. Yeah, well, it It's actually a really exciting, yeah. dynamic JV between two pretty significant organisations, isn't it? Absolutely. And you know what? It is a statement of intent because we are looking to grow housing delivery in this country. But fundamentally, Housing Growth Partnership, or HGP, we are part of Lloyds Banking Group. And our funding comes from both Lloyds and also from Homes England. So we are a partnership between the two of them. And what we are is a specialist equity investor into residential development. So what that means is we partner with both developers and house builders all across the UK and we put inequity alongside them and what we're really trying to do is accelerate the delivery of homes and also help those businesses to grow. So does that mean you're backing more risky stuff or stuff in specific locations, particular demographics? How are you supporting growth that wouldn't have occurred anyway? So We are very flexible in terms of what we support. It's all across the living sectors. So we do any homes really, whether they're for sale, any kind of rental, whether that's BTR, whether that's affordable homes, student housing, retirement, all of those. And in terms of, you know, how we go about it and the risk we take. So it is equity. So in a sense, that is taking on the full risk of the development. And we do that alongside our partners. So really where we come in is where they have schemes that they want to develop and they probably have access to debt financing. But there is either an equity gap that they need to fill in order to make that scheme happen or they have the capital to do it but actually what they want to do is not just build one scheme at a time but maybe using our equity alongside theirs they can do three schemes rather than one and then the next and then the next so in that way it accelerates the delivery of homes and it also helps those businesses to grow faster than they would otherwise have been able to do. Yeah it makes sense and I'm guessing there is going to be a growing equity gap given what is happening with interest rates what's happening with inflation and just generally the costs of financing schemes, in some cases, trebling over the last 12 months. Yeah, 
it's a really interesting time for us at the moment. You know, like everybody in the market, it's difficult times. We have construction cost increases. We have interest rate increases. But what it also means is that there is increasingly that equity gap. And financing is becoming such a major issue across the board. So what we're really finding at the moment is that we're being approached to get involved with such a wide range of opportunities. So whether that's homes for sale, but also even developments, which I guess typically going back a year would have been forward funded and now finding that approach a lot more difficult and are actually coming to us and saying, you know what, let's build things speculatively, let's partner on them the approach that we take is very much about that risk sharing. So we're not preferential equity. We don't get our money out first. We take on exactly the same risk that our partners do. And John Tafem, PFP Capital. So you're essentially the fund management arm of Places for People, which is by some measure one of the top three housing associations in the country. Good morning. Yeah. So we're PFP Capital. We were set up in 2017. We're kind of unique, so we're the only housing association that has its own FCA-authorised fund management business, mainly because it takes a lot of effort to set one up. The vision for us was the group can only do so much on its own balance sheet, and it wants to amplify its impact. So we're a not-for-dividend organisation, but we make profits. We can only do so much with what we've got available on our balance sheet. So we only have a certain amount of land, we only have a certain amount of capability, and we only have a certain amount of money. So our job is to bring those three things in alongside the group to run parallel. So where the group has initiatives such as PRS and affordable housing and regeneration and development, our job is to set up funds that amplify what they do, but with other people's money primarily. So we have a PRS fund, which is funded by USS, which is the UK's biggest pension fund. We have an affordable housing fund, which has a number of local authority pension funds invested into it, as well as the money from our group and from Nationwide Building Society. And we have a placemaking and regeneration fund managed by our partner organization, Igloo, which we're working with Rachel with through HGP. And all those things sit parallel to what the group does, but they access land capability and money from Mm. somewhere else. Why do you need it in that structure though? Because a housing association obviously has a book of significant income producing assets that throw off a huge amount of cash each year you've got significant land holdings i'm not just talking places for people but pick a big g15 member or any other national member it's the same deal right why go through the hassle and expense of a regulated structure when you already have a lot of the assets to play with and could set up such jvs so our plan our secret plan is to be bigger than our parent say our parents five billion I like the way your secret plan It's is, not secret now. Is... <laughs> <laughs> I keep telling everybody it's my yeah. secret plan, but it won't be secret anymore. But Hundreds uh, of thousands of people have just heard you say, John. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, but it took 30 years for our group to get to 5 billion. We think within 10 years, we can get to 5 billion. If your group is about purpose, so we've just relaunched our strategy as a group. It's about community. We've moved from place. We've moved to community and creating community in its widest sense then the way the group can create more communities is by setting up something that can access things that it doesn't have to itself. And the group's got other cash pressures, as all the housing associations will have going forward. I mean, Mm. it's in damp and mould issues, on upgrading the EPCs of its estate. They don't have as much free cash to be able to increase their scale as they had. They're not allowed to take on equity. They can only access the debt markets. The debt markets have become more expensive. So there's lots of reasons why if you want to amplify your impact, which is what we're really about, 
then setting up a fund management business that can aggregate money from others is quite interesting. And if you take that a step further, we're starting to take PFP Capital as maybe being the fund management business for the industry. And that becomes really interesting. If you're a social housing provider and you want to be able to access institutional capital, then we will work with other RPs to help them amplify their own ambitions. We're not necessarily just for places for people. Just on that point, I'd be interested in both your views on this, given your relationship, Rachel, with Homes England and John, what you've just said about the wider housing association sector. Because there does seem to be a fair amount of pushback from the housing regulator, the regulator of social housing, Roche, on private capital coming into affordable housing. And some would say it's a political divide, a bit like we've seen in healthcare over the years, only until recently when the NHS started putting the option to select private healthcare on the NHS app. You know, 10 years ago, you'd have got shot down in the street for suggesting that. And there's now an acceptance almost that we're unable to deliver the sorts of health services we need in this country without private support. And some would say common sense should have knocked some heads together years ago in social housing to say the same thing. But the regulator seems dead against it. Many people politically seem dead against it because they see capitalism as this big evil force. Am I being unfair, both of you? And if I'm not, how can that tide be turned? I mean, I could probably make your analysis sound even worse, if you like, before then we go and come up go with an answer. Yeah. But you know, if, you're, that. Drama's good. if you're a tenant in social housing and all of a sudden your landlord changes from being a not-for-profit housing association to something with private capital into it, you're going to be pretty worried, I think. So that's part of If you of noticed. If you noticed, but you know, eventually you probably will particularly with social media, that's going to amplify, you know, within that community. People will notice and should know and should feel comforted by it. So I think the regulators worried on a couple of levels. I think there's a care for tenants, primary objective. Then there's motivation of the money. So there's about 74 profit RPs that have been set up. I can't remember the stats, but there's something like... Not many of them are regulated. The regulated for profit RPs, there's 70. The number of houses are concentrated into about three. I think most of them own something like maybe even got to only eight to 10 houses so far. A lot of them have been set up by developers who want to retain Section 106 houses. Mm. And, and Granger was one of the first. Granger did that years ago. Yeah. And the Hyde M&G one, I think, is a good example of something that's an acceptable and right way to do it because you've got some private capital, you've got an RP, they're bringing those two things together, the homes and the money, still managed by the RP, but dragging in quite a sizable amount of additional funding into the sector mm. that unlocks the other money to be able to deal with damp and mould and EPC issues across Which some of the Which I think some estates. would say should have just been dealt with years ago as a business as usual activity. Well, yeah, well, I can't argue with that. Yeah, probably should have been. It's an interesting one, isn't it? Because we are obviously seeing a huge amount of private capital come into the sector. You know, pros and cons to that, but realistically, that sector is going to have to be more innovative around funding particularly if we want to keep delivering more homes as well as dealing with all of the challenges that come up with those that are already under management another role I have alongside my HDP role is I'm on the board of a housing association called Soho Housing which is really interesting because as you'd expect from the name it's based in and around Soho so it's providing affordable homes right in the most expensive bits of London and you know the way that is funded it has a small commercial portfolio 
alongside all the affordable homes and there is kind of cross subsidy there but we've got to be innovative in that sector and currently at HGP you know it's something we are in conversation with a number of housing associations to see can we work with them is there a structure that works in terms of providing them with additional equity I'm not quite sure how it's going to work yet but I hope that we can find one. Mm. So this partnership that both of your organizations have the HGP igloo joint venture as it's being referred to what does that then look like so we've got lloyd's backed by homes england on the other side of the fence we've got pfp and you mentioned some of your relationships john across the piece with funds like uss and some of the the municipal local authority pension schemes how do we make two plus two equals seven out of all of this stuff this jv is one we are incredibly excited about we've been talking about it for a long time haven't we done and how this is going to work is we both sides are putting in equity and we have a really strong pipeline that the IGRI team have put together over time. We've got 10 sites within the pipeline in three cities. So that's across Glasgow, Newcastle and Nottingham. And the focus is really on those regional cities and it's on brownfield regeneration. So it's very much for HGP what we want to do. They are secured sites. They're going to be brought through planning by the IGRI team, then come into the JV, and we're going to fund the development. And in terms of the debt, then, presumably Lloyd's is providing that or someone else? So we are quite open as to debt funding. So the first scheme, which is in Glasgow, is actually being funded by Paragon. We can use Lloyd's funding, but we can also talk to other Londons. Mm. And the sustainability side is something, Rachel, that you're very keen on prioritizing. I guess cynics would say that everybody says that how do you balance out that very laudable objective with the fact that you're owned by a large listed entity that's obviously got a very clear responsibility to its shareholders to drive profit yeah and we make no apology i think for being a commercial entity and looking for those commercial returns and really this goes back to the risk aspect of it if you are equity and you're taking on the full risk then you need those returns to compensate for the risk that you're taking. But I suppose we don't really see it as a trade-off in most cases, quite apart from wanting to do the right thing and the fact that, you know, Lloyd's as an entity is very, very focused on this as well in terms of providing housing and building a more inclusive society. You know, there's no conflict there with the aims of the bank. And on a personal level, of course, it's something that we're all really interested in pursuing. But Even putting all of that aside and looking purely at the commercials of it, homes which are built more sustainably, homes which are better quality, homes which create great places, they will sell better, they will sell faster. I do think we will see more of a price differential. I think we already see it, but I do think we'll see more of that. Can people afford it though, given the sorts of locations you've described, Nottingham, Glasgow, Newcastle, are these not areas that are going to be more affected by rate rises and the general cost of living crisis we're seeing than slightly higher end locations? There will always be something of a cap in any location. And as a sensible investor and developer, you're not going to build anything that you don't think you can sell in that location. But having said that, one thing about regeneration, I'm sure John can also come in on this, Mm. is that you're not necessarily just building what's already there, right? No. So, I mean, I'll come in like... So the triggering word for me in that, which I know you've used deliberately, is laudable. We used to be funded by a large financial institution. And we do a lot of work with community in bringing forward our development plans. And in one of the board meetings, one of the directors asked us why we did all this messing about. 
And my colleague actually said, well, the reason we do all the messing about inverted commas with community is we get our planning quicker at lower cost and we sell our houses faster for more money. And that epiphany really hit that guy because all of a sudden he went, oh, I get it now. And when you look at it, yeah, okay, it does sound like it's laudable. But I think if you build places that people understand and want to live in, you will be more commercially successful. One of the things that I'm trying to push against is this idea that what you build, you have to sell. So I think if you're creating new neighborhoods, you'll be more successful if you curate them. And curate them doesn't mean building the houses at the rate that people will buy them and hoping that they kind of look after them or live in them in the way that you'd planned. Typically, if you're building 70 houses at a time, you might put 30 on the market. But some of those might be picked up by buy-to-let investors. Well, their objective is to rent out at the highest rent and lowest cost. But that doesn't necessarily fit with what you might want within your community. Mm, great swathes of Manchester and London or exactly yeah, that. But your average buy-to-let investor has got eight houses, right? Just think about that. Our whole PRS industry, the majority on a weighted average has eight houses. So how much capability do they have to kind of curate community and look after tenants? Not great, is it? So when you're doing regeneration, my ambition and our ambition is to not sell everything we build. I'd actually like to build things twice as fast as anybody else would. What would you do it then? I mean, structurally, Rachel Miller, how does that work? Can you, within the structure that you have with PFE, can you sell that into either the Citra platform, which is Lloyd's Bank's rental housing brand that it's been beavering away at, or John, equally, you've got a rental platform within PFP Capital. How does it work? Are you able just to build, stabilise and sell the stuff, or do you have to sell it for ownership? So HTP, we are not the long-term holder of real estate. That's not what we're set up to do. As you rightly say, Lloyd's has Citra, which does do exactly that, and as an investor and operator, of rental and clearly PFP Group and PFP Capital have the same. So in terms of how HGP looks at it, we do need an exit, but we are quite flexible about what that is. So we can sell homes to owner occupiers, but equally we are very happy to sell rental homes of whatever type to an investor. So I suppose with this particular joint venture, we've kind of underwritten it, I guess, for sale, but we can be flexible. And I would say that's one thing about HDP is one of our defining kind of point of difference, I think that we have is our flexibility. And that's across geography. We're not just looking at London and anywhere close to London. We go across the whole of the UK, you know, Cornwall, Scotland. And it's also around the kind of structures that we use and it's around the kind of real estate that we fund and we can always try and look at things differently in order to make it work and if we decide that actually something that we thought was going to be for sale we want to sell as rental you know that's not really a problem for us at all I would say the thing we're probably not so flexible on is actually the quality of the partners that we work in and we are fairly inflexible and picky about that yeah yeah and John what would your ultimate ambition then be to hold everything you build nope one of the good things but also the challenges about being in pfp capital is we don't do anything the normal way so we get really bored with the idea of doing what everybody else does so we've done an affordable housing fund in scotland that takes houses for market sale and then helps the developers turn them into affordable housing and then we rent them out over long term but doesn't have any grant 
So with some kind of financial engineering that we've worked up with the Scottish government, we've come up with a different way. And this fits into that mold is that, you know, we've sat back and said, why sell everything we build? Why can't we just hold some? We've got a white labeled platform across the group that looks after properties. Our job is to persuade Rachel that maybe staying in for a period of time for some of the houses while we establish the communities is a better outcome than selling into another platform. So that's the kind of, I won't say it's tension, but that's the kind of mischief that we're up to with HGP. And how do you measure that? Because, I mean, you've talked a lot about communities. I'm going to challenge you on this, and you know that, John, just because these are words that everybody trots out again and again and again. And I know that you mean it, which is why I know you don't mind me challenging you on it, but lots of people, and occasionally people that come onto this podcast, do just bang on about stuff using some of these cliches and given that how are you able to convey your sense of genuinity on this stuff how do you measure these things how do you make sure that what you're saying isn't just left aside as well he would say that is some property guy using yeah, money to get planning we use a sustainability approach called footprint hgp are bought into that we do that because we think it creates great places but also value has an external audit committee it has JLL that reviews how we've gone about delivering our projects. It has a methodology that reports how we're doing against the measures. It has an independent audit committee, which is chaired by Julie Horogoyen from the Green Building Council and others, Anne Power from the LSE. And they scrutinize what we do for every project to make sure that actually we stand by. And then the other bit we do a lot of is working with the community. So we work with the community before we develop schemes. I was in Nottingham three weeks ago in a pub where we do a kind of a four-stage process and we were at stage two where we bring members of the community in that would like to live in the scheme or live around the area and talk to them about this is what we planned for the scheme this is what we agreed with you this is our trajectory in these areas where would you like us to change is there what support we're doing? proportion to the time of day <laughs> no it's lunchtime unfortunately <laughs> and the pub was shut but i think it could have got a bit messy if we'd let it go on for too long say, yeah. but we generally work with them and we listen to them and we feed back to them and we're held to account by the community and again it still goes back to that commercial point that if you're building things that people want to live in and they like you know they're our customers i don't understand how you can run a volume house building business with not that much feedback loop from your customers, your ambition is to generate a set of standard house types that you can build as quickly as you can at lowest cost. And I know that's a route to tackling the housing issues, but you build them to the standard that exists at that time. There's very little kind of feedback loop from the people. You're basically just dropping in a standard Tudor box into a piece of land because that suits you yeah so that's got its place on the kind of larger greenfield sites but also when you're dealing with more gritty urban sites and maybe you're dealing in the most deprived parts of a city you need to take a more nuanced approach but that nuanced approach doesn't take an architect from another city to sit and dream about what he would like to design for his own benefit actually what we need is somebody to sit down from the community and say these are the things that need to be tackled within this site within this location and this is how we'd like to address it. We can't do all of it. Some of the stuff we just put in a box and we just say, this is low impact, high cost. We can't do it. And we just explain. We don't do everything we're asked to do. Mm. We take the community on a journey. We really care about it. So two questions. Do you just focus on using local architects then for these projects? And thinking about the wider housing sector, why have we gone into this position where so much of what's built is of such poor quality, it doesn't get anywhere near even modern sustainability levels, let alone 2030, but yet successive governments have subsidised 
house builders to the benefit of shareholders. So on the first point, the answer is, do I use local architects or do we? Sorry, I'm sounding a bit like an inside housing editorial. Apologies <laughs> okay. listening. But so I... we did a joint venture in Sunderland. And as part of the bid process, the local authority said, you can only use Sunderland architects. But we kind of pointed out the window and said, well, show us the say, great how many, buildings. How many, how many architects <laughs> in Sunderland are there? Well, that's the point, isn't it? Do you only use local architects? It depends. But what we've done with Newcastle, we've absolutely used a mixture of local and international architects we often bring people particularly on the placemaking side from scandinavian countries in because they're exemplars in that area so it depends that's the first answer to the question and then the second bit of your question is why is what a lot of the houses that have been built to a kind of minimum standard it's about the chain so the way we build a house is through a chain there's you know some land that land needs to be turned into something that can have some houses built on it. Whoever puts some money into that's got certain objectives, mainly around money. You've got somebody who builds the house. Their objective is to maximize profit. So yeah. you need to build at the yeah. lowest yeah. cost. Yeah. And that forces you down a route where you've got to increase density because the first person wants the most amount of money for the land. And then the second person wants to increase profit. So that makes them do something. And it just goes along in that sense. And the planning regime doesn't necessarily insist on quality for a long time it's been driven by numbers homes england have been driven purely by the number of houses that they build in a particular part of the country mm. for a number of years now thankfully they've changed that but i suppose other people would say that some of these demands on quality are outdated ineffectual inappropriate for the specific locations and we then get into this cyclical debate around whether england should be full of victorian townhouses mm. which was yeah. the whole thing that came out of the government's design guide on this a couple of years back but i mean i think put more bluntly what both of you are saying to me is that people will pay more for great quality housing and i look at the market and i see people paying through the nose for pretty poor quality housing particularly because they don't have a choice yeah and you, know, you made the point earlier about you know can people afford to buy these houses you're building but residential buyers are relatively unsophisticated compared to somebody who's responsible for managing a massive office so somebody managing a massive office would look at the whole costs of occupying it what's well, the cost you of think that, but i don't know people looking at the woeful office market might have a different so view john but you've sorry, got to looking after millions of pounds of their investment so they take a bit more kind of care and they're more sophisticated well, yeah, okay. but we're starting to see and rachel and i in the scheme we've done in glasgow we valued the scheme based on a certain way that we'd set it out in terms of how its environmental attributes. And then when we finished the design, we went back and its values had gone up 4%. And that's because people are prepared to pay because they look at the whole life costs of their building, how much it costs to heat and light. They're all a factor, not just the cost of buying the house. And I think it's really important to look at not just the process that Igloo are going through. And, you know, they are very rigorous. Igloo are B-Core which, you know, that is a rigorous process to achieve that certification. But it's also looking at the outputs, right, and the schemes that they've produced, and they do stand head and shoulders above a lot of what is built. And if you look at what we are doing on this first Glasgow scheme together, there's air source heat pumps, there's so many innovative aspects of it. It's being built out of panelized modular construction. The contractor is Glasgow based. They are using material sourced from the local area. It's like it's basically a locally sourced home, which I love. Yeah. It's great. Do they have trampolines in the gardens? Um, I'm sure there will be <laughs> trampolines. And there's a sunken garden in the middle. We're going to see the factory next week, which I'm yeah, really excited about. So who's providing the modules or the panels? 
Wales. We use a building contractor called CCG. They only operate in Scotland. We've done, it's probably about the third development we've done with them. They have control of their own supply chain, which makes them kind of unique in many respects. So they're not going out to subcontractors or third-party factories. They basically build their own houses in every kind of sense. And as Rachel says, those homes will be built to a really high standard. Air source heat pumps in Scotland, that's quite challenging. You've got to live in a house with an air source heat pump very differently to one you do with a gas boiler. So some of it that we have to do is about education of people that live in the homes as to what they can expect and how they can live in those homes. It's not straightforward. It is hard work, but they will benefit from and, vastly and, reduced and, bills. And also the problem is that at what point is the grid going to be fully electrified because or green because you, yeah. there's still a coal mine at the end of the circuits use your analogy earlier yeah there is and you've got other pressures like electric cars and how do you manage electric car charging across an estate we've got some quite interesting plans in nottingham to deal with how we deal with electric car charging and how much electricity is consumed we did the uk's first community energy scheme in nottingham where we have a solar farm that powers some batteries provided by tesla we did it with the two universities in Nottingham and we're going to plug into that project and expand it and create a kind of whole new centralised electric car charging area where it means we haven't got to pump so much electricity to the houses, it makes it more efficient. The solar is effectively charging your car, you're trading with the grid. So those things are kind of dropping down that use on the electricity mm. grid and all that kind of accessing power from places that you don't intend to access the power from in the first place, a coal fire. Do you see battery storage becoming a greater part of yeah. some of these schemes? And is that something that you're able, in your current fund structure, to invest in? Yeah, so in Nottingham, what we plan to do next is, for the next phase of our scheme by the waterside, is to create what we call a car barn, which is like a mini multi-storey. It'll have PV across the roof, and it'll have electric car charging within the car barn. You probably won't have a parking space outside your house. We're not going to put car chargers outside every house because you're just splitting the power across 60, 70 houses. Yeah. The transmission loss is huge. If you can centralize it into one building and generate the power through PV, then you can charge the cars within that one place. Vastly reduces the electricity consumption mm. from car charging. Provided you can store the energy for when it's needed. And you need a battery. And you also need to commercialize it. So you've got to be able to charge for the charge. Otherwise, the thing doesn't work so there's some maths to do around making that work but our intentions are the next scheme basically houses won't have a car parking space you won't have a plug on your wall there'll be a car barn it'll generate its own electricity through solar that's how you're going to charge your car that's what we think the future is not necessarily how you generate electricity but how you use less for us clearly this area is incredibly technical it's complex it's a really specific area of expertise that you know certainly I don't have many in the industry don't have but it's something that we need more of and one of the great things about working with Igwe is the opportunity that we have actually to learn from all of these projects and something that HGP do is we work with a lot of SME house builders and developers mm. and there is such thing as intellectual property and all of that but something that I think we're not generally that great on in this industry is sharing knowledge and best practice and that's something that as HGP we feel we're in a really strong position to do because we are working with a lot of businesses and your average SME does not necessarily have the resources 
to put into this kind of thing that an igloo does or that some of the large prop codes do who are also very strong on it and something that we really want to do is to learn from some of our partners and to be able to kind of take that knowledge and make that available where appropriate across the board and we have a panel of senior advisors who are experts in various parts of their industry whether that's sustainability whether it's sales and marketing whatever it is that we can bring in at our own cost and that's something that is of great value to a lot of the businesses we work with who will look at this kind of thing and say that sounds brilliant we'd love to do it but we're a really small team and we don't have the resources. Rachel so you spent 13 years at Grosvenor before moving across to Housing Growth Partnership. Just tell us briefly about that time, what you learned, what was good, what was bad about it. And I suppose to some of your views, how that shaped some of your views now in the job you're doing. So it's a very different landscape from Belgravia and Yeah, Mayfair. it's different. So I joined Grosvenor straight out of university and I stayed for 13 years. And I did a whole range of different roles in that time, mainly around investment and strategy. And I ended up actually doing something quite similar to what I do now, which is looking at equity joint ventures with developers. But it was a fascinating place to work, an amazing kind of training ground, really, really interesting company. And it definitely has at its core that focus on social responsibility, environmental sustainability, you know, very strong and all of that. And it really goes kind of, into the heart of that business. Grover has certainly always sought to be a North Star for many of these yeah, things. Yeah, and it's, in the you know, it's absolutely genuine and guys' decision-making, which is so important. But what I would say about Gravener is it's got that really long-term approach, right? So Gravener's been around for 300 years. It wants to continue to be around for the next 300 years. It's all about that long-term ownership. It's not about developing and getting out in general. So... In a sense, it's kind of easier, actually, to have that viewpoint about let's build really good places, good for the community, long-term sustainability, because actually you're still going to own it in 100 years or so, maybe. So it's completely to your advantage. All the incentivization is completely aligned, really, between you and the occupiers of that space to create a great place. So in a sense, you kind of have an advantage there, whereas I suppose coming to HGP, What's interesting is we are a short-term investor, but we still think about all of those issues. It's still really important to the business. We still want to work with partners like Igloo for whom those values are very much aligned. Mm. And John, you worked at GBA, didn't you? Which is now Abbas and Young. What was your role there? What did you do there? And there was a few other things that you were involved with when you Chrysalis. Yeah, so actually it was just about my 20-year anniversary in regeneration. I was just thinking that on the way in. So 20 years ago, I worked for one of the RDAs. So regional development agencies, I was the finance director there. My frustration with working with the civil service was it's all about giving money away. And I always felt that the public sector could invest its money. And actually, it's surprisingly hard to invest money if you're the public sector, but surprisingly easy to give it away in the form of a grant. So I went on this kind of campaign to show that the public sector could invest in a way that was sensible and delivered its outcomes. And I then set up a joint venture which still exists today. And then I joined Igloo, which was on the other side. I was Igloo's finance director until 2017. And in doing that, set up things like the Chrysalis Fund, which was, again, publicly funded. It used European money. It actually took money out of the European grant pot in Liverpool. It caused absolute pandemonium because everybody saw that we were raiding the grant pot and put it into somewhere else. But we invested all the money that got put 
out the grant pot into a loan fund called Chrysalis. That money has now been spun round about twice, I think. It's delivered some really innovative developments in Newcastle, a kind of derelict building now occupied by Sony. Those kind of occupiers have been bought into Liverpool that wouldn't have happened otherwise. And I felt like the fact that we lent the money rather than gave it away forced out quality. Because mm. in a sense, you can't just use it as a bit just to top up your profit. You've got to give it back. I'm really proud of what we did with Chrysalis and there's a couple of other funds that do similar things around that. And then when I finished at Igloo in 2017, I went to GBA for a bit and I ended up advising cities on how they can do the same thing. So how can you invest your money rather than just giving it away and hoping that it delivers what you want? And that's why I ended up at PFP Capital because we're back to kind of changing a sector. How can you invest money to give a better outcome? How mm. can you persuade public bodies? And that brings me on to, I suppose, final question I've got for you both, which is the structure and the role for the public sector in some of these sorts of joint ventures. Some have said, and this is something that I discussed with Tom Reardon, the boss of Leeds City Council, a couple of weeks back, he didn't think RDA's regional development agencies would have any kind of comeback. There's pros and cons of these sorts of structures. But I'm interested what you both think about the role of the public sector, particularly given some of the things that are being said politically now by the Labour Party. And this street fight that's now happening over house building, which just never really happened before, where you've got Labour saying, we will build on the green belt, we will take NIMBYs to task, whereas the Tories and Lib Dems seem to be shying away from that debate. Is that going to change the way the public sector engages with development? And what form should some of those JVs take, Rachel Miller? So I think the fact that this political debate is happening is brilliant. I think we should talk about it. We should be honest about it. And particularly the proposals that have come forward around CPO on land without hope value, that's really interesting. We'll have to see where that goes. In terms of how the public and private sectors can work together, I think what the IGLU team have done in terms of bringing sites forward all of those sites are really in some form of joint venture with the public sector. And they're good examples of how that can work to kind of mitigate, I suppose, some of the challenges around getting homes built. So it's really interesting the way that Igloo works with the public sector to bring homes forward. And they do that in a number of ways. And one of the ways the public sector can be really kind of instrumental in that is looking at the price, actually, that they want for the land that they have. And including within that price, the fact that they want those developers to build really high quality homes. They want to have those better outcomes in terms of place and sustainability. And that may impact the value of the land. Goes back to John's point on land value earlier. Another way that we see it is their ability to defer receipt of capital for the land, which as an investor can make all the difference between something being viable or not, because it massively reduces funding costs. And they have the ability to do that. They may also de-risk projects through either leasing commercial space themselves, through taking on some of the affordable housing component of the scheme. We see that. So there's all kinds of ways that the public sector can actually catalyze that development and help it work. Mm. So I think just building on that point, it's about how you articulate it. So the public sector that we were with, nearly all the stuff that we're developing is on public sector land in some shape or form. Mm. And it's about persuading the public sector that they can take away some risk. But also the flip side of that is getting the investor to understand that the risk has gone. 
So a lot of the investors look at the fact you're working with the public sector as a risk in itself. So this is about being at the kind of fulcrum of a partnership. It's about being able to persuade the public sector that if you take away certain elements of risk, it drops the cost of money. And it's about persuading the private sector that because that risk is gone, your money should be cheaper. And that's really hard. And actually, that's where the HGP relationship came out of really is that we made that point and they get it. But a lot of investors will say, if you're working with the public sector, that's a risk in itself. And I think just being able to make that link between the fact that the public sector is there to help and therefore you should accept that help. I think that would definitely break the back of a lot of the development that we want to bring forward. Mm. Well, it's an interesting mindset shift. And I think there'd certainly be a lot of people in the market, John, that would be very much up for a discussion with the both of you about how they could do things a bit differently. So let's leave it there. I'm very much look forward to seeing some of these car barns when they arrive and the trampolines as well, Rachel. So thank you very much to Rachel Miller from the Housing Growth Partnership. Thank you very much to John Tatham from PFP Capital. I have been Andrew Teacher, Managing Director for Real Estate and ESG at Montford. Thank you very much for listening. As ever, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. Please continue to support us, get in touch with any guest suggestions, and we'll see you again very, very soon. Thank you very much. Bye-bye.